Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and digital production. Our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today is Audio Day. We've got a great group of audio experts here. So if you've got audio questions for the first hour, go ahead and throw those in. Of course, you can put any kind of question in, but uh, audio questions, we've got a good crew here to answer those audio questions. Uh, in the second hour, uh, Carl Asmussen is going to be walking through the Antelope Galaxy 64 Synergy Core um, and the ATEM microconverter. And, uh, and so we're going to be talking about that, but we'll also be talking about just generally high-end audio interfaces and how they work and what makes them different. So if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw those in for the second hour. And uh, make sure to vote on those questions because it tells us what order you'd like us to answer them in. All right, let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vera Beach, Florida, and Andy says, has anyone found a way to automatically turn on lighting when you start a Zoom call? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, now, now I don't know if Zoom can be the catalyst to this, but, and you didn't mention which platform you're on, I, I can't speak highly enough, uh, again, about the ability uh, when shortcuts, this, the scripting, uh, environment came to Mac. Uh, it was on iOS. Um, I, I have my on-air shortcut, and I like checklists. You know, I'm uh, like coming on the show here. I make sure I do this. Make sure I do this, and I just script that checklist. So not only does it do it, but I don't have to remember it. And so, I mean, it launches every app that I need. It actually signs me in with meeting ID and everything to this meeting and it fires up my lights. It sets my microphone at the correct gain. It does everything. And um, it's accurate because it's always going to be the same if it works. And, and by the way, it also sets the particular lighting preset that I use for this. Um, and when I go into a different mode, if I'm just in here recording, but I'm not on camera, I use a different lighting set. So, and that just depends on what your lighting automation environment is. I, I will give a little tip. Um, often uh, or not well known is that um, if your lighting platform doesn't natively support uh, some type of integration, but if it does, can hook into IFTTT, um, first of all, there's IFTTT uh, shortcut integration now natively on iOS. So, for example, if I happen to be firing up Zoom on iOS, you can have what they call um, an, an automation in shortcuts, meaning when the Zoom app loads, automatically do this stuff. If not, they have uh, web hooks. So you can go onto IFTTT, create a web hook, which is just a URL, and then anything you're scripting, if it can fire off a URL, it can do that IFTTT stuff. So and I think that short, uh, shortcuts should be able to do the same things as IFTTT is do it should have those same scripting in it. Um, well, but it doesn't necessarily have the tie-ins, let's say, uh, to your particular, let's say, lighting automation. So I'm saying if you need IFTTT... I guess if you're not using HomeKit. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, cause the HomeKit stuff all ties. ties in, you know, for instance, you know, I right. have... Um, I don't tie it in so that when the Zoom call starts or when I start a Zoom call, it turns all the lights on because I need the lights for other things. <laughs> so I have different settings for those lights um, and I have them in there. And so I have it tied in so I can, you know, I can actually go to my watch and go, oh, I want, I want to turn the lights off and then it's going to get pretty dark in here and then I can just turn them back on again. 
um, with that. And so that's, that's the, um, you know, that's the shortcut that I have there. Uh, I can click it from almost anything. I can be walking towards my office and turning them on as I walk in. And so uh, I also have another one that is, for instance, if I don't want to have the blue lights on, I can just turn turn that back area off and leave this on. So there's a couple different um, things there. I, I got into the shortcuts because of the, because we were doing, um, uh, because we're doing Zoom. So, so the, uh, so anyway, so it's, so I think that uh, uh, you can tie it into that or you could make it as part of this because I have other shortcuts that say join office hours, join after hours, join. And so if I clicked on that, I could easily add these to that um, so that it wouldn't be when Zoom starts. It's when I say, go start this meeting, uh, it turns the lights on and off. I'm, it might be able to do the, the other way around as well. Next question. Next question comes up from Simon Ray in Midlands in the UK. I'm looking for a small UPS and under uninterruptible power supply to keep the M1 Mac Mini alive while being moved between rooms. The minimum requiring requirement is delivering 100 watts for five minutes, but it's vital that I can temporarily prevent the alarm sounding. Any suggestions? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, the hard part of that to answering that is the temporarily making the alarm not sound you can get you one of these hundred dollar aps um i mean apc uh, ups es 550 it'll handle 350 watts continuously but it ha does have a little piezoelectric sound ma uh, noise maker on the motherboard what i do is i go in and i semi-silence them by putting a piece of very thick gaffer tape over the hole in the piezoelectric sound uh sounder and that <clears throat> reduces the level to a point where it's very hard to hear. Uh, there's that. You can do that so that it doesn't, you know, destroy it and doesn't just, you know, void your warranty and do that, all that good stuff. Or you can do Alex's method of going in with a pair of dikes and clipping it out. <clears throat> or you can get really uh, uh, industrious and go in and unsolder the, the noisemaker and run a pair of wires to it and put a switch on it so that you could temporarily turn it off. But I don't know of any that can uh, temporarily turn off the noisemaker. I don't know if there's any that have that because you don't want to leave it off and have it uh, switch over and not know about it. So there's some degree of liability there. Yeah, I, I'd probably uh, be a, a, a little conservative about what it can do. I mean, I think the 350 is probably enough for what you need for five minutes, although I'd probably get a 750 just to be safe uh, to make sure there. I I only buy 1500s because I just don't want to think about lots of little ones. And the 1500 is the smallest one you can get where you can slip the battery out that I know of. So the, the battery will slip out, flip. Like, for instance, if I want to travel with it, we have to flip the batteries to, to, to go with those. And so... Um, so I, I get 1500s, that'd be a lot for just your little computer. So, and if it's a lot to carry around, um, we just take the PZOs out. <laughs> like if we, if we need it to not say anything, we remove them. Um, and, uh, um, I usually, yeah, it's, it, 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 if for the ones that I use in my office, I obviously want them to beep, but if we want it for any reason not to beep, we haven't really done anything other than just remove them. Um, next question. Next one from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach. Does Final Cut have the same native support for Dolby Atmos as Logic? Good, Bill. I would answer this with a big yes and a small no, and here's what I mean by this. First and foremost, Final Cut uses the same core audio as everything else on the Mac does, which means that all of the uh, system is built on that API, on the core audio API. It's incredibly clean, and it's very useful. Now, as to 
channel assignments, here's the thing. Final Cut does Dolby uh, does 5.1 natively in there. It also has this amazing system called Rolls. Rolls let you take audio or anything else and assign it a role. And it would be incredibly easy to take as many tracks as you want that eventually you're going to go into an Atmos mix and assign them to something, tag them with those roles, and export a sound matrix that targets each speaker any way you'd like. So that is able in there. But inside Final Cut, when you're working in your suite, you can't really do more than the built-in 5.1 that's in there, I think, right now. So it's kind of a, a big yes. You could do a work in a in an Atmos suite and make sure that your output of sound targets all the speakers correctly, but not sitting and doing the work in the suite in real time. That you're kind of stuck at 5.1 at this point. Yeah, I, I would say that Final Cut has channel-based audio, but that channel-based audio is, well, I wouldn't really define that as as uh, Atmos. Atmos is ob- object-based as well as channel-based, and there's no support for the objects in Final Cut. So you can do 16 channels of audio, so you could do 9.16, uh, up to 9.16 in beds, uh, you know, in those channels to make that work in Final, in final Cut, um, or 5.1 or sub 5.14, sub 1.14. All of those would be something you could do as beds. Um, but what you don't have are the object controls um, that that we would that I would call what defines Atmos. You know, is is the resolution um, uh, independent uh, object roles that that are there. There's um, you can have you know so so that's the uh, that's the thing that you're missing with Final Cut. And I will say that even the five dot one support in Final Cut is tangential. I wouldn't do a five dot one. I wouldn't do anything that requires more than stereo for in fi- in Final Cut currently. They added five dot one to uh, Final Cut, but they added it like ten years ago, and I don't think that they've come back and looked at it again. Like they just haven't really, you know. Like it was like, hey, we've got five dot one, and then they haven't really done anything with it. So I, I'd be pretty. I wouldn't consider it a viable Atmos solution. Um, you could make it a five dot one solution, but you'd be working hard at it. I go to Chris. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with Alex. Um, I believe that there's a lot of features <clears throat> in Final Cut that are the byproduct, and I love Final Cut, it's the only editor I want to use. But there's a lot of features in there that are the byproduct of uh, somebody saying, we have to be able to say it does this. Give me a check mark on that column. You go, well, you know, we got the we got the 5.1 working, okay, done. But, no, no, you said it was working, okay, we're done. Like, like, like let's move on. Um, but I will, uh, agree with Bill in that dealing with the roles and it's not just the roles. And if you're, if you're really interested in this, reach out to me and I'll, and I'll walk you through some of the details, but like roles in conjunction with the export settings, uh, I've done, as a matter of fact, I did something Alex for you. I can't remember what it was where we had to get six or eight channels out very specifically left, right, center, sub, whatever. And I was able to build a patch and you have to listen. You don't get to listen to it in that while you're cutting. But on the export, I got everything out to all the the right, uh, uh, I'll call them channels. I don't know if that's the right thing, tracks, whatever. Um, but it was... Uh, <laughs> It was really hard. A thing, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was really hard, but but that export window is super powerful, right? And 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 I will say that if we're if we're doing high dynamic range or or immersive audio in any way, shape, or form, it generally means that we're going to resolve. You know, for for those solutions. Um, go ahead, Bill. 
I think those are perfectly fair responses. Uh, I have a friend, Charlie Austin, who works in a trailer uh, manufacturer, you know, a movie trailer type world. And for him, the amazing thing is this role system allows you to preset... I want these rolls to go out to this export. And he has built, because he has to deliver to all of these movie theaters, some of which are 5.1, some of which are stereo, some of which might be mono in an old town in the middle of nowhere. And he has a list set up that has all the specifications for all the stations that all the trailers have to go out to. And he tells me that he now has one click. So when it's time, when the, when the trailer's finished, and he has to export... 50 different mixes he hits one button and goes to lunch and when he comes back 50 different are labeled with the correct slates visually on the front of them and done so it has these amazing capabilities but not specifically for multi-channel atmos exports and, and to be clear he's not mixing in in in, in uh, final cut he's simply taking things that are delivered to him to make to to export all those things he's so creating deliverables work, but you're not, you're not doing anything with them um the uh by the way when is he coming on to show us that like that's what we, we should want, get right? charlie on here at some point I, I haven't talked to him in a couple of in about six months or so so let me let me ping him and see. i think there's, Charlie's I think there's a great second hour here waiting for us to talk about roles in final cut so yeah. i'm just waiting for you and chris to um <laughs> Uh, get ready for that. Oh, I'll oh, ping Charlie and see if he wants to come on. I'm talking about you two. Just, just talking about uh, roles. We, we yeah, need to no, do the roles conversation before he comes on and does the does the uh, export sixty different versions. But one. <laughs> All right. Next question. Next question comes from David Brady in New York City. I have seen ATEM tally light projects, but what about an on-air indicator? At the Sunday place, we stream with a built-in encoder and wonder what would be the best approach. Pi, Arduino, or other? Anything beats us uh, cueing talent verbally. Good morning. Well, um, I don't know if the ATEM can output, uh, can provide an output that could trigger an external device when the encoder starts streaming. But um, I would ask whether this is something that you might not be overthinking because you can get a, an on-air light um, that can, you know, turn on with a remote control. Uh, or you can hook it up to a relay uh, and control it over the network using something like uh, Global Cache. Um, this is something that you're going to turn on when you start streaming and turn it off, you know, an hour and a half later. Uh, does it really need to be connected to the ATEM or is this something that you can manually trigger? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I agree with Marty. He's overthinking it. If that's all you need is something to indicate when you're online, uh, that would be the way to go. I was thinking that, you know, maybe this is a Zoom call and they want the person on the other end to know when they're on the air or when they're up. In that case, I was going to suggest just taking the uh, splitting the output, uh, the program output of the ATEM, and uh, feeding it into a you know a cheap USB to uh, uh, HDMI converter, and uh, sending them back on the on the Zoom return, send them program output out of the ATEM, or even better, multi-view, which they'll have tallies. They'll know who's who's in preview, who's up next, and who's on the air. But if it's just to let the uh, person in that Sunday place know that they're streaming on the air and they're not looking at a Zoom call or anything, then uh, as as Marty said, a switch, remote switch on a uh, on a little sign that lights up would, would work great. Yeah, I don't know if I would tie the the 
on air to the stream mostly because we start streaming before we go on air. I mean, what I mean by that is we stream to a countdown clock or a, we're starting, you know, coming right out of a, going right into a stream and going live is usually not something that I would want to do. So, so I think that I would typically want to, um, I usually want to start streaming at least a minute, two minutes before the event starts. And if it's a big event, we'll start, you know, 20 minutes before trying to play video content. So, Tying it to the, your streaming may not be what we want. What we really want to probably do is time it to when you're cutting to a that main camera. Um, and so you could, again, have an electrical switch. You just pop up. It's got a light on it. It takes another light. There's an on-air. You, you can tell someone something. But you could also, if you're, it depends on which ATEM you're using. If you're using a little mini extreme, you might need something like Mix Effect that, has, that might have a shortcut that could be connected to it so that when you cut to it, it does what it needs to do. Um, we are talking about ways of polling, knowing what state the switcher's in, but we don't have that working, I don't think, yet. Um, and then the other thing that you can do, of course, is the larger ATEMs have GPIO. And using GPIO connected to, uh, we would probably connect it to an Arduino. We could make a decision process there that you would, when you cut to when you cut to something, it would say on air. And that's how we build tally projects from, you know, from, from there. But we usually typically have used Arduino in the past uh, for that. Yeah, go ahead, Marty. Yeah, so it, it may also be helpful to have um, two or three lights, uh, one to indicate a five-minute warning, one to indicate a one-minute warning, and then one when, you, uh, when you're starting your program. Yep. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Andy Kokendorfer again in VR, Florida. I like the quality of light from the Elgato key light, but I hate the app control. Suggestions for a similar light with manual controls. Thanks. Go ahead, Carl. So the one I'm currently using that's lighting me right now, so this is the Godox ES45. Now, this picture kind of shows they're, they're quite good. You actually get the stands, so they're telescoping stands you get with them. Um, you only get one at $99, so $200 for two, but you do get stands. Now, I'm going to show you why they're so valuable. So you can use the Godox app on your phone, which is pretty good. They're bicolor, so you can, you can it's between 28 and 65 But the cool thing is on the back is the magnet, magnetic remote. So this is actually attaches to the back. So you simply control. So I can actually do this live. So touch the button and I can control the lights. Now I'm controlling both lights with this. So there's one, there's one on each light, but I only have to take one off because I can make groups. So you can have groups A, B, C, D, E. So you can control lights. You can change the color of the lights. So if you want, so, but I can do that with the app. I can do it with this. This has a lithium ion battery in it. Simply recharge it, just put it on the light while the light's plugged in. It doesn't need to be on, just need to be plugged in and that's it. Now I just got to get my lights back the way they were. <laughs> go ahead, Chris. So, there we go, done. I, I go, for, go back to that orange look. That was, that was festive. <laughs> I like that, Carl. Uh, so Summer sunset. <laughs> Carl, what's the physical? I, I, I did not. I the minute I hear Carl's voice say Godox, I realize, oh, I've heard of this before. I did not buy these. I bought the the Elgados. And uh, what I wanted to mention, because I mentioned this yesterday, I recently found this gizmo. It's a little uh, um, what do they call these egg crates that fits the. Um, 
the light. Yeah. I can't remember what technical it's called name now, is a fabric grid. Grid. Yeah, and it but it fits the uh, the Elgato light. Twenty five bucks, and I was shocked. I was really shocked how well it um, how well it worked because without it, this wall over here would have a wouldn't wouldn't retain the same. Uh, blue cast that I'm throwing on it because it would have a whole lot of spill light on it. And on this side, um, I still have the big piece of cardboard uh, flag, which I'm going to replace with another one of these. I bought one of these egg crate things uh, to test it, and I was super impressed. I, I realize, I apologize, that uh, that doesn't answer your question about the... Uh, Software control, Andy, but um, I use it off my phone. I control them off my phone or off the software, and I turn them on and off with the. Uh, oh, geez, this is a horrible television. Uh, I turn it on and off with the with the Stream Deck. Go ahead, Bill. And if you're looking for these, so grids have been used on lights for a long time. It's the thickness of it that determines how much spill it takes off of something. And when you think about it, if you're looking at an egg crate kind of thing and it's only a quarter inch deep, uh, if you go off axis, you can still see the light from most of it. If that same grid is deeper, say an inch or even two inches, it's going to let light out only in one direction. So that's how you control spill, the depth of the grid. Also, uh, most people who are going to be traveling use fabric grids. There are aluminum grids for like lights that you put over stages and stuff like that. So if you're interested in them, they're a great light control tool. Yeah, and the ones that I use uh, when I travel are the Nanlite 6Cs, the, the Pavo tubes, and they are not the same. Uh, they're not square. They're little form tubes. Uh, it's a different form factor, but they have manual controls on the back with all kinds of colors and effects. You can get them blinking. Uh, you can, they have batteries in them, so they last if, you, uh, if you're moving them around, and I like them. Uh, they're, they're fairly... Uh, I, I don't use the blinking part, but you can make it look like a police officer's coming. They have these ones that change colors, like that pulse between different colors. It's pretty exciting. Um, but uh, anyway, but that, those are the ones that I use there. Of course, you can, you can start to look at things like DMX. Uh, so, so as you go up in cost, uh, getting DMX controls will allow you to have a lot more control. And usually those, those lights have some external controls as well. Next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach is up next. When editing dialogue for video, do you typically edit right in your video editor, such as Final Cut, or bounce it out to a DAW? Uh, go ahead, Carl. So it depends how big a project you're doing. If you're just doing like interview, you kind of sit down, then yeah, you can just like Final Cut or Premiere. They will have all the tools you need just to edit that kind of audio. If you're doing audio, so essentially if you're doing dialogue effects and music and ADR, that's where you may want to use dedicated door like Pro Tools um, or even Logic um, and then bring those tracks in um, that way. So you can print them out to stems and then Final Cut or Premiere will happily take stems. It's much easier to control maybe eight, six, you know, 12 stems rather than 140 tracks. Yeah, go, Bill. Yeah, I haven't had to go outside of anything for the last 10 years. Um, now, I do not do orchestral recording and I do not do uh, 30 actors in something. The roles thing that I mentioned earlier really can help a lot in those, but I think the high-end audio people almost always have a tool that they're very 
uh, facile with, and they use those tools. They go out and do all their audio work there and then come back in. But for almost everybody, I'd say for 95% of the market, the tools built into a modern DAW, and that's going to include Final Cut, um, it's going to include Premiere, it's going to include Avid. Most of the standard day-to-day use tools are built in and work just great. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, I don't know that I'd refer to Final Cut as a DAW, but okay. Uh, what I want to say is, um, you know, we call this show business because it's really a business. And there are clearly times and people that we know and hear on this uh, panel that have uh, made a name for themselves and a career out of doing nothing but the absolute very best at all costs. However, being that this is a business, I think you want to think about, um, Jeff, you want to think about just the reality of what you're actually doing. Come on. You do not. For, for I have never done a video that one time I did a video where I had to take the audio outside of my editor, Final Cut. You can do, as Bill mentioned, 95, maybe 98, 99% of what you need to do, you can do in your editor. Now, you may not know how to do it. And so the real question is not, well, I don't know how to do it, so I must have to go to Pro Tools. No, maybe you just need to educate yourself a little bit more about the capabilities of the software that you're already using. But more than likely, you can do everything you need to do. What we look at is we want to be efficient. We want to be fast. We want to be able to execute the change orders that come from clients. I can't tell you, you know, when you get into a cycle where you have to go outside to do your color or you have to go outside to do your audio, when those little changes come at the last minute, ugh. I, and I'll tell you, I, I did a show for a uh, particular uh, Bavarian car company years ago where on site uh, they went through, I believe it was four revisions of the video that I had cut that they were going to play on site, they went through four revisions the morning of the show. So I had to have everything in my editor because I needed to control everything. And every one of those exports that I del- and I was still at home. Uh, uh, I was literally at home at a broken foot at the time. Uh, but had I had to like interface with, you know, my audio guy in Pro Tools or my colorist in whatever, uh, it would have been a nightmare. So yeah, it, remember you have to be efficient. I think when we're talking about speed, um, it, it really makes sense to keep it all in the same place. Uh, I think that um, when you're talking about precision work, uh, you know, for features or for uh, larger scale commercials and so on and so forth, those are going to go out to color and are going to go out to, um, you know, a separate audio, um, you know, solution. And so in those cases, a lot of times you're going to end up with a two pop at the front and the back so that you can line those back up again. And then you're going to send them out, um, you know, to have uh, somebody else make them, uh, you know, or or to work on those. Uh, So I've definitely worked with audio editors where, you know, their skill set and the set of tools that they have are way more advanced than what what I have or what I'm what I know how to use. <laughs> and so so I have them do that same thing with the color. Um, and so and I think that that's where Resolve is really starting to go that way. I wouldn't say that Resolve's made it there yet, um, but having all of those in one place definitely is is something pretty interesting. Uh, although I still probably do. I'm probably fifty fifty Final Cut and Resolve, and and 
Ironically, the last project I, I went to just hack through Resolve because I thought I would use it. I ended up bringing it to Final Cut because Resolve was having issues with the audio. <laughs> so, so that, so, um, so anyway, so I think that those are both things to kind of consider there. Um, let's go to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer, Vieira, Florida, says, how do you deal with DPC latency issues causing audio jitter and intermittent packet loss? DPC latency only occurs on Windows OS systems. Thanks. Good, Courtney. Yeah, delay procedure call. This is a, a problem with some. Uh, it was a problem with the Melees uh, when they came out with the new uh, chipset, uh, the, the HD drivers for the uh, digital output over HDMI was a problem. I did find a very good article uh, that you should check out on Sweetwater uh, called uh, Solving DPC Latency Issues. And it uh, it even has a tool that you can download here called Latency Monitor that uh, will check your latency and give you readouts of what could possibly be causing the uh, buffer underruns that cause the jitter or cause the stuttering of sound. So check that out on Sweetwater Sound. It's under solutions. Uh, I'd show you the number, but it would probably be meaningless. Just search for it. I think it's 171-7927. That's the knowledge base article, but it's a good article on how to solve DPC issues. And a quick reminder, of course, that you can ask questions throughout the first hour and the second hour. So if you've got questions, we've got a great audio team here, as well as some great uh, generalists here that can answer your questions. So whatever questions you have here, go ahead and throw them in, whether they're audio or media. Uh, so go ahead and ask those questions and make sure to vote on those questions uh, so that we know what order you'd like us to answer them in. Let's go ahead and jump into the next question, Bill. Douglas Carmichael, Samsung has introduced the Vufinity S9 monitor with integrated Tizen smart TV apps. What does the panel think? And he's got a link there to the unit. Um, you know, these are, uh, I guess, now the article in ZDNet, of course, says it blows past the Apple Studio. So it, it seems, and now this just, I think, I believe this was just released um, yesterday or two days ago. Uh, and so, um, so this is, and of course, Every time someone says Apple should be worried, I usually kind of kind of think that we're talking about clickbait here. Um, but fifteen hundred dollars or sixteen hundred dollars for the twenty-seven inch screen, we would have to get one in in-house and test it. It's kind of hard to tell from the uh, uh, just from a, a small article here as to whether it's um, it says HDR six hundred support. That's six hundred nits. I do not believe that that is as bright as the, I, I mean, that may not be the peak, but I don't think, I think that the, the Apple display is a little bit brighter than that. So, uh, so I, I, I'm not sure if Apple should be quaking just yet, um, but we'd have to take a look, closer look at it. Um, we'd have to get one in the office. Maybe Samsung will be listening here and we'll send uh, one to Chris for him to test. <laughs> Next question. Uh, Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York's back again. Morning, everyone. I want to create a new logo based off a pre-existing one. Are there any AI models that the panel can recommend that would take submissions and return some suggestions? You know, I don't, there's a lot of AI logo um, systems, but most of them have been you describe something and they generate a logo for you. And you can even do that in something like Midjourney. One thing that I might try to explain, uh, explore is uh, take, you know, you could theoretically take your logo, upload it to Midjourney in your conversation, copy the link, put, paste the link into Midjourney, and then say as, and then add the things you'd like to change and see what it does. I don't, I will say, I, I don't find that Midjourney or a lot of these, the, the AI tools that I've seen so far when it comes to logo design look like they're mostly grabbing a bunch of existing s stuff and just 
doing it in different ways. So it doesn't, you know, they're all in a, a bunch of columns that, that they, that they, that they use. Uh, and, but I haven't seen any that base themselves on the last logo. So you can, you know, uploading something and referring to it, but it'd be an interesting puzzle, um, to make that work. It depends on what kind of logo too. If your logo has objects in it, you might be able to put those in uh, with it and, and have it pop something out, but most likely it will be significantly different than what you started with. Um, next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Apple wired USB keyboard through a USB hub doesn't show up on the M2 Mac, but its built-in parent keyboard hub does. No problem on an Intel Mac. Ideas? I go ahead, Bill. So hubs are not always the devil, but sometimes they can be a little demonic. And I, I say that because I have had circumstances where a, a hub will pass something perfectly for one piece of equipment and won't pass another, which seems to be what you're dealing with. I noticed that when I got my OWC main desk hub here, there was one port labeled, if you are going to attach a secondary monitor, do it only through this even though there were two others of the same ports. It tells me that in the circuitry of hubs, some of them pass everything and some of them do not pass everything. There's more subtlety than just, it says USB, so if I plug in a USB, I should get everything. That appears not to work. And I do know I've run into some things uh, like my Universal Audio Apollo Solo that unless I connect it directly to the laptop, it does not function correctly. If I put it through any sort of secondary hub and try to pass it through, just doesn't work correctly. So that's just a reality I think we all have to deal with. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, that Apple wired keyboard is uh, got a three-port hub built into it. So basically, when you plug that into a hub, you've plugged a hub into a hub, and then the keyboard may not be making it its way through the double hub. So don't double hub. You can try plugging the keyboard. You should plug the keyboard in directly to a USB port on the side of the Mac. And unfortunately, there may not be enough of those ports. You may have to get you a Dremel tool and cut a little hole on the side and make a new port. <laughs> but it's a hub into a hub. Not you could try and reverse it and plug the, keybo plug the keyboard into the primary and then plug the hub into the uh, mouse port on the side of the keyboard with an A to C adapter. That might work for you, but a hub into a hub is usually a bad idea. Yeah, I, I, the hubs barely work, <laughs> oftentimes, and then and then adding that. I I have to admit that I've kind of I've only I only trust OWC and Uni UNI. Um, those are the only two hubs I'll use at this point. Um, the, a lot of them have had enough problems with them, so the non-powered hubs um, I use the 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 Unis or Unis or I don't know UNI. Um, I have a couple of those that work fine, and I have some OWC hubs, and those are the only two. Um, if you're doing anything out of that, um, I think that that'd be problematic, and I would never plug two hubs into each other. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael back again. I noticed that Logic can import and, ex and or export AAF files. Isn't Logic designed more for music instead of film video post work? I go ahead, Carl. So it's designed for audio, so it doesn't matter where you're already be podcast music. But remember that, as I said, there's, there's dialogue tracks, there's effects tracks, and there's music tracks. This is in television and movies. The music tracks are generally done in something like Cubase, something like that. And then that session, as I said, those stems are then sent out and it's sent off to the sound editors from the composer, whoever's creating the music. So it does go through multiple kind of software, but it's they 
the project will agree on formats that are interchanged. So whatever form, whatever the stems have, there's going to be a, an agreement there in the project what the format that has to be. But the usually the composer will work with whatever they're more comfortable with, Reaper if they're going to do electronic music, um, and then they give the stems over in the format that's required to the sound editor. Here you go, Bill. Yeah. Um, so the APIs, the application programming interfaces inside the, the the core audio, which is what Mac does all of its audio universally on, and I imagine there's something similar on the PC side. Um, it gives the software writer access to all of what the the chips in the machine is designed to do. Now the software writer gets to determine whether to take those capabilities and expose them to the user or not. So Logic has a design for particular tasks, what people have asked it to do. It's not exposing every single thing that the chip or the processors are capable of doing. It's trying to say these are the things that this kind of user would use. Uh, on the Final Cut side, which again uses the same logic code, they're exposing only the things that somebody working in sound for video would be likely to need to use. So they'll expose something like punch and roll recording because that's pretty typical a task for somebody watching picture and having to substitute a, a few lines of dialogue or a, a music cue or something. A different package, you know, Steinberg or something else, whoever makes different music packages can choose whether or not to expose things to their users. And that's usually the difference in software. They're all calling the same basic functions, but they're doing it in a different way to try to take care of the needs of the audience that they're trying to address. So that's how I've come to see it. And I think that that's pretty accurate and, and comforting for me to know. Sometimes just another piece of software will do the thing you need if it's not in the main package because they just expose that part of it. Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California said, third-hand poles are great for hanging lightweight gear, but what's a good solution with a small footprint for hanging a pull-down green screen? There are a lot of solutions for these uh, that you can find um, really on, on Amazon. Um, so the, the third-hand uh, third poles are very similar. I think Manfrotto and a couple other folks make more built ones that are built for our production. And you can, you can actually push those up against a, a ceiling and a, and, a, and a floor. And then building a crossbar with Mafers uh, is possible. So you can have, because the, the green screen isn't very heavy. So you can actually take Mafers. Um, these are little clamps. I don't think I have one within hand, hands reach, but um, they are, and that you can just clamp them onto there and then run a pole across there and then, and then attach your green screen to that. So that's one way to do that if you really don't have any footprint at all. If you have any footprint for light stands, there are tons of light stand systems with a crossbar, um, and you'll have a little bit of a footprint uh, that might be, you know, uh, 18 inches of footprint on the ground, uh, but they'll stabilize themselves with that crossbar, and a lot of green screens actually come with that on Amazon. Um, so so you, you should be able to um, uh, find one of those, and those pack up. They usually come with a case that you can check even, um, but they're they're pretty relatively easy to set up. Uh, go ahead, Bill. In my studio... I used to have one of these, uh, a whole system of these. These are backdrop rollers, and they come. They start with a bracket that you mount to the wall. Then you can see that there's uh, roller stems that go in things like background paper, uh, seamless it's called. They also have these plastic chains that allow you to roll up and roll down. And I had literally, I think I had six of these in my production studio. Uh, one really long one, the 120-inch rolls of seamless, and then one... Uh, um, for the shorter rolls, it was incredibly flexible because you can just roll down a background, say, oh, we don't want white, we want gray, roll it back up, roll down the gray.
a it's a great efficiency tool for production uh, if you want to go in that direction. But there's a lot of a lot of capability for this kind of background stuff. And what I will say also is that you will generally find the the best green screens to use, even with these kinds of pole systems, uh, are the composite components Lycra, the green, digital green Lycra. And the reason for that is you can really tie them to it and stretch it and then spray it with a little water and all the wrinkles will go away. Um, and it produces a really great one. Um, another one uh, that... that um, uh, yeah, it, so yeah, so that, that those are things, other things to look at there. There are some freestanding ones um, that uh, I am I am going to um, uh, <laughs> I've just spaced it, but we'll show we'll show you some in the future. Some freestanding green screens that you can pop up as well. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, "What software and or pipelines are used for editing films designed for theaters? Is Avid still dominant, or are Final Cut, Premiere, and Resolve also used?" I go ahead, Chris. Avid is not necessarily dominant. They're all used. It doesn't matter. Just have all the early meetings with your post-production supervisor and make sure that you have a, a clear pipeline. You know, you have to do all the testing ahead of time and make sure that you can get everything through the pipeline and get it to to your delivery specs. Uh, it doesn't matter. You can use anything. Good, Bill. Yeah, it was interesting. I just saw a picture today, and I, I tried to find it really quickly. I couldn't locate it. Of a major motion picture editing editor, he was working and he was in like an, um, in the Amalfi Coast. It was for something international. He was working on a huge movie and he was doing it on his laptop. Uh, the, the, the weird thing is what used to take these really bespoke, perfectly created, has to have all the throughput necessary to run video through this. That's kind of all gone away now. And it is possible with kind of off the shelf tools to actually work on these high-level theatrical things. You may not be touching the actual um, fully realized Oneg, what they call the original negative kind of stuff. Uh, maybe you're working on a ProRes encode or a, an other kind of MXF encode of it, but people are doing this work even on the top-level Hollywood things now on well-configured laptops where it used to take really specific suites of equipment to do it. It's just a new era coming. Go ahead, Chris. Bet you anything that photo was posed and staged. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, these days I think I find Avid, and mostly in television series, uh, Avid probably wins out the most. Um, but there are editors that use uh, Premiere Pro, Final Cut Pro. There's use things lightweight <laughs> there's you find them yeah. using all kinds of things that the editor has brought up on in theatrical production a lot of times the difference mean uh is uh how well that software deals with assistance because a lot of times you will have editor assistant editors who are syncing up the dailies and preparing the uh, uh preparing the bins and everything for the main editor uh, and managing the back end and the database and uh, and all the uh, descriptive entry and the metadata entry all that can be done by assistance rather than the main uh, the main editor. So, uh, you know, Avid handles this quite well. Uh, the ability to have different modules that assistants can work on, prepare everything for the editor, and the editor can just sit down and work through the shots for the day or the shots for that scene and all the organization and the, the metadata and the scene and take numbers are all aligned there uh, for them. So it depends yeah, on I, the editor. I mean, from my experience, 
working on this, uh, I would say probably 80% of the market is Avid and Pro Tools, you know, like right now, as far as uh, how these things are posted. Um, and then everything else fits into that other 20% Final Cut and Premiere. Uh, Resolve is probably the thing that's growing. Almost everything goes through Resolve at some point. <laughs> so it goes, um, you know, it gets colored typically. So it's going to go through the Avid and then it's going to go into Resolve for color. Um, but uh, obviously they're trying to, you know, it's it's growing in the in that group there. But um, but I would say the 20, last 20% is Resolve, Premiere, and Final Cut is most of the last 20% um, uh, hanging on to that. But but 80%, I would say, from my experience, I don't really, other than the stuff that I work on, because I don't work in, in Pro Tools, in Avid or Pro Tools, uh, everything else I see is, is in those two apps. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Eduardo Augustine in Panama. I built a fly kit with Atom Mini Extreme ISO, but now I'm trying to do replays for sports. How should I go about it? Good, Carl. So an EVS would be one. Um, another one would be you can do Mimo Live with a Mac Mini, a new like M2 Pro Mac Mini. That should be fast enough. So that that Mac Mini would just be doing an EVS style thing, you won't be doing the record of the show, you do that on a hyperdeck or in, in, in whatever way you want to do it. Um, another way you can do it, but this requires a bit of coordination. Like if if you're good at being like playing a DJ, you know, spinning, spinning records, then you can get two hyperdeck shuttles and essentially they leapfrog each other. So one hyperdeck shuttle will just record and the other hyperdeck shuttle is your is your playback. And you can just and those hyperdeck shuttles are just you just cut to cut to it. And you're just going to be the playback. The other hyperdeck shuttle is recording what's currently happening on the field right now. You think of it that way. And then if you if if something happens that you want to show that happened while you were doing the replay, you go to the other hyperdeck shuttle. And because it's got that big jog wheel, you can quickly just whip through it and find it. So this you would need an extreme to do this because you do want your two outputs with the extreme um, SDI much better because you've got your four outputs. So you can have one output being one hyperdeck, one output being another hyperdeck shuttle another being program another being multi-view so it can be done but you, you do need a bit of coordination if it's just you it's better if that's just one person doing that but they do need a bit of coordination with a td but two hyperdeck shuttles perfect to do it because they just have the built-in everything yep. so, good chris good. yeah eduardo if you've ever been in a in a tv truck or seen it if you ever get a chance by all means take it but watching what happens in tape is is like an orchestra uh what Carl just mentioned about leapfrogging. That's exactly what they're doing. Everybody crashes into record, you know, right before a play. The there is you oftentimes on a bigger show there is a uh, tape producer. There is just a producer in the tape room that is organizing which order to take the things, and they'll and they'll call it up to the uh, front bench. You know, say hey, we're going to go, you know, A X and then you know Y or whatever, uh, and. Um, and my question, Carl and Alex and anybody who knows, can you, you, you mentioned the Hyperdeck shuttle, Carl. Is there a way to play back in slow motion off the front of it? Or are we just talking no, about You could roll replays? it, but you wouldn't be able to really no. play it back. I, I think that, I mean, there's, there's definitely some stuff that's less expensive than an EVS, but probably more expensive than the shuttles. Uh, there, you know, uh, New Tech makes a thing called a three-play. A three-play is designed to do exactly what you're talking about. Now, it's going to be... Ten or fifteen thousand dollars, I think, and so that, but that three play will do what you're looking at there. Um, another one is M Replay, and M Replay comes from Softron, and it's a piece of software. Uh, you can get hardware for it, so you can get basically it's a you get a deck link with a you know going into your computer, 
and it will capture six or eight, you know, things at the same time. And it's built to do replay. <laughs> so it's it's less expensive. It's a Mac-based, less expensive than uh, the three-play, but more expensive than the shuttles. But the, they're going to give you the tools that you need. The hardest part is not really recording and playing back. The hardest part is doing this in real time. So an EVS is built to, you, you have a separate operator there punching in, punching out. Um, and, and it's a really a, a pretty, you know, you have to do it very fast. And so you really want a tool, in my opinion. Uh, I think that you may have trouble hacking your way through it and actually ending up with replays that happen in a timely fashion. But if you're, you're going to need, you know, you you need a couple and, people, you need a couple people. And that's my that. point. In a, in a big but, sports event, there's four guys running. One, one for each playback. Yeah, yeah. It's, or yeah there's and four, a producer. 20. Or 20 guys, yeah. Um, yeah, a quick reminder that, of course, you can still ask, ask questions for the first hour and then stay tuned for the second hour as we talk about audio interfaces. And make sure to vote on those questions so that we have a proper order. Let's go ahead and jump into the next question. Jonathan Daigle in Washington, D.C. says, VLC app on my iPad Pro, and he's running an A12X, crashes each time I launch it. I've restarted iPad, can't force quit the app before it crashes, afraid deleting the app will remove 20 gigabytes plus of video in the VLC folder, any ideas? Uh, go ahead, Marty. Well, the first thing I would do is to get that 20 gigabits of, of uh, video information off the iPad, put it on a separate hard drive, put it on your computer somewhere off the iPad. Then you have the flexibility of working with the VLC app. Then you can delete it, you can uh, reinstall it, which may resolve your problem. Or and if and if that still doesn't work, go to a different playback uh, application. Go, Bill. VLC is one of the longest open source projects. It, it started, I think, in two thousand and one, so it's twenty two, twenty three years old now. It is pretty amazing. Being open source, it means that kind of no company owns it. It is a collective of people who get together and try to make this thing better and better, and they do. And typically. VLC revs as quickly as any commercial software I've ever experienced. A couple of things I would do. Look at your VLC version and make sure it is the latest because as these formats and things migrate, uh, that open source community has to react to that and rewrite parts of the code to handle the new stuff. Um, so I would just say make sure it's up to date. Thousands, no, not thousands. Millions of, of users around the world rely on VLC, and it has an, a sterling reputation. The people who manage this code base have done it for 23 years brilliantly. Uh, and it may be just that this version, there's something broke compared to your machine that may be fixed with a rev coming up. And again, make sure you have the latest version. So make sure you go to VLC.com. Um, it's got Windows and Mac OS. It's written in like eight different languages, including Swift. So it works on iPhones and things like that. It's just a pretty brilliant thing. I wouldn't give up on VLC. I would try to make sure that you've managed all the variables like the current version. Yeah, and I'd, I'd make sure that the VLC, there's not a VLC folder in your iCloud. Um, most of the time when I'm saving something to an iPad, that folder is sitting in my iCloud. And so it's not only on my iPad. Um, very rarely have I had anything that's only on my iOS device. So just make sure that that folder isn't sitting somewhere um, there already, um, because it's pretty unusual to have a folder sitting on an iPad that is not um, part of the cloud network. Um, and so, but otherwise, yeah, I would hold on to it and wait for an update, uh, report it as Bill said, and hopefully they'll fix it before you lose, the, lose what you have there. Uh, next question. 
Uh, Douglas Carmichael's up next. A Milwaukee-based group built a live electronic music system into an ambulance. I've seen plenty of minivans and Teslas, but could a surplus ambulance body make a useful production vehicle? Go ahead, Courtney. I would think so, because one thing it's got, you know, most ambulances have is a high-quality inverter built into them. So the power system designed for powering AC equipment uh, will be built into it. You'll probably have a lot of AC outlets in the back that you can plug uh, all of your electronic equipment into and run it uh, off of AC. So uh, there's one possibility. You might have to take the red lights off because you'll be violating a number of uh, ordin- city ordinances if you drive it around with red lights on it. So... Uh, well, there's that. And it uh, it can probably be pretty uh, bulletproof. Those big old Cadillac ambulances are, you know, built like tanks. Yeah. I mean, you can turn almost anything into a production. I mean, we, we've, uh, uh, a 1F Jeff has has a Tesla that he has built this into. Um, so there's a lot of options there. It just depends on what you need. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, they're also fairly well insulated uh, thermally as well as acoustically because they've been running that siren all the time and you need to be able to communicate inside the inside the van. So um, uh, insulation is an important thing for a production vehicle because you, you want to isolate yourself from outside noises. And there's also lots of storage space around the perimeter, outside and inside the vehicle. And, and that's Great places to mount, like outboard gear and and other things. So, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it could be very very handy. And if it comes with a gurney, then you can build your mixing desk on the top <laughs> of the gurney, and then you just push it, and it goes tunk, tunk, and slides right into the back of the thing. And it perfect perfect solution right there. <laughs> All right, um, uh, next question, Junior Grant in the Bronx, New York. Good day, office hours. What is the recommended mic type for a two-person podcast production setup outdoors in a park? Good, Chris. So my first question, Junior, is why? I mean, why do you why do you need to? Also, pod, what does podcast mean anymore? To me, podcast is an audio file. Therefore, why do you need to be outside in the park? Maybe you mean podcasts like Joe Rogan where you know you have yourself a Jamie and a couple of cameras and he cuts between the hey Jamie can you call up that picture you know do that kind of thing so maybe that's what your podcast is uh, but I would use I would use all the standard techniques for noise suppression I would use a dynamic mic I'd put it very close uh, I'd use like a you know MV7 or a sure MV7 or the sure whatever the MV7 is trying to be like the older mic I can't remember it has a seven in it also uh, but that's what I would do but why? Why do you want to be outside? Yeah, so um, MV7 with the USB, but that's you can do that if you're going to two into one mic, but you can actually just have yourself an audio interface. Um, so XLR Go by TC Helicon. So these are battery powered or bus powered, and they'll go straight into an iOS device or a computer. Um, they just run off AA batteries inside. Um, similar to ceremonics in a way, um, they have phantom power because they have battery power. So you can you could use you know a condenser like you, a four sixteen if you really want to go that way. Um, but it's more about what the microphone's also going to pick up. So airplanes flying overhead, birds. We don't really notice. We tune it out ourselves. We actually tune out wind noise, rustling of leaves, and that kind of stuff. Um, that stuff we tune out naturally, but a microphone will pick it up. So just be aware of that too. Go, Bill. 
I do it the same way film people do. I get a uh, 416 in a blimp with a fuzzy rye coat on top of it so that because wind is going to be your number one problem. The secondary thing is environment like the airplane thing. So I'd probably boom it from overhead and point it down. It would be an expensive solution for two people. You're probably talking about three or four thousand dollars to rig that. But that's what I do just because that's what Hollywood does when they have to shoot outside in the park and get good, clean dialogue. Yeah, I don't, I mean, for the podcast, it depends on whether you need video or not. So if, if you don't need video, I'd probably use a, a Zoom uh, a Zoom recorder or a MixPre uh, recorder, MixPre 3. I mean, with two people, MixPre 3 with two SM58s, probably do the job. <laughs> you, you could also have a, you could give people headsets, you could give them a countryman if you wanted to, so they could sit there and just talk to each other. That might be more natural for the two people sitting there. So a countryman or a DPA uh, that you could plug into those mix pre but i but i would use a field recorder as opposed to an interface if i'm in the park just because that's what it's built for uh, go ahead chris it's seriously junior i'm curious send me a message in discord i'm curious about what the nature is of the production that it wants to be outdoors in a park just curious next question Idris Hege of Fairfax, Virginia. What pair of passive speakers would you recommend for a small theater with a high 18-foot ceiling, primary for clear-spoken audio and occasionally watching Netflix? You know, I, I number one, I don't really buy passive speakers because I don't like dealing with speaker cable. <laughs> so, so I don't like, so I'm always, you know, I, I, everything I do is, is powered speakers because it drives, uh, speaker cable drives me crazy. Um, and I used to, I used to have a lot of speakers that had speaker cable. That's why I don't use them anymore. Um, so I don't like dealing with amps and, and that type of thing. So, um, anyway, so, uh, but I, I, you know, the Yamaha makes a lot of great stuff that, that would probably be, uh, useful there. Um, yeah, go ahead, Marty. Yeah, eighteen foot high ceiling is just one dimension. Um, would need to know more about the dimensions of the room, uh, what other kind of material you're going to be showing, what type of content, uh, how many seats are in the theater. The thing about choosing speakers is the dispersion pattern, uh, being sure that all of the seats um, have the have the same coverage in both frequency response and and volume, uh, and and just to make sure that they're equalized properly for the room. Mm -hmm. So acoustics matters. Right. Uh, is this a home theater? Is this a community theater? Uh, what kind of volume level do you need? A lot of variables there that there are a lot of speakers that can handle this kind of thing, but choosing them carefully uh, it would be important and yep. I'd need some more information. And Mickey recommends uh, JBL 3732s or 4732s uh, front uh, left, uh, front center right. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado. Uh, I recorded audio with an ambisonic mic, Zoom H3 VR, pulled in a cart behind me during a 4th of July parade. That must have been fun. I recorded video and audio on a GoPro with media mod mounted on my chest. And he wants to edit, uh, he's asking, should he edit it in DaVinci Fairlight? Uh, I think you can. You're going to have those, you're going to have, I think with the ambisonic, you're probably going to have four mics that you uh, um uh, you, you might have four mics that you're going to edit through there. Of course, you're going to need something to process it. I don't think that there's an ambisonic conversion in there. So you're going to need some of the plugins, uh, Deer VR or something like that to actually do that conversion from ambisonic back to the channels that you're trying to get to. Uh, Chris, real quick. Okay, I just want to mention that the that media mod, the microphone that's part of the GoPro media mod is actually quite useful. I've done some stuff where I got really usable audio off of it. So as you're doing everything else with your ambisonic, don't forget that you have that track too. You may be able to mix it in. 
Uh, next question. Brody Hefner, a panelist mentioned the very useful Sweetwater Knowledge Base. What are some other go-to audio reference resources that panelists would recommend? Sweetwater. <laughs> I, I'm also, uh, you know, like Sweetwater's got some great stuff there. Um, there's some good folks on online. Uh, audio University is one of the ones that I, I tend to watch a lot. Um, I think that they have a lot of great videos. I try to kind of keep up on those. He's He's got some great pieces there. So that's the one that I'd probably recommend outside of that. Of course, um, for more music-based stuff, Rick Beato is great um, as far as breaking down music. So I, I'd recommend those. Um, just a quick reminder that tomorrow, uh, Jeffrey Orthwine and Andy Sullivan will be here. Um, and they're going to be talking uh, uh, about the movie that they're working on, I Don't Want to Drink Your Blood Anymore. <laughs> and we had talked to them about their previs uh, about a year ago, I think. And they, they're, about, they're about to go into shooting. And so now they're, um, they're actually done with shooting. They're in post. And they're going to give us a little breakdown of what it took to do the shooting. And uh, hopefully we'll just be able to keep on following this film forward. Uh, Friday, we're going to be talking about loading in and loading out. I know it seems like a pretty silly thing to talk about, but uh, it is important. <laughs> so and we, we've learned a lot. We've grown a lot. Many of us started with some, uh, you know, r pretty rough egg crates oftentimes and, uh, and, or, or, um, or milk, milk, little milk boxes and so on and so forth. And we've grown to something else. So we'll talk a little bit about how to get in and out of venues. And then of course, remember on Saturday, we have uh, disability inclusion and employment. Uh, this is part of our, our accessibility series that we're doing over the summer. And then of course, Sunday is introspection. So stay tuned for all of those things. And now we're starting on our uh, second hour, and we're going to be talking about audio interfaces, and Carl Asmussen is going to get us kicked off with a little bit of a presentation to get us started, and then we'll begin the discussion. Uh, go ahead, Carl. Uh, go ahead. Uh, take it away. So the discussion we kind of want to have for this second hour, um, I've got a little slideshow that we'll go through. In this slideshow, I'm just going to show one degree of separation of something that'll be directly attached to an audio interface. Now, of course, you can have many, many things, so I'm not going to cover everything, of course, and I don't want the slide to go too long. Um, but also, while the slides are going, do put in questions. If, I, if I, there's something I haven't said or something, could you hook this up instead of what you've talked about? Definitely ask that question. Um, and also for the other panellists that will go after the slideshow, also think about alternatives that you might hook up that I haven't thought about or that I haven't put in there to keep, you know, to keep time. Um, what else you could actually put in and actually hook up to an audio, inf audio interface that um, maybe I haven't talked about. So um, essentially the, the main thing that I want to cover here is um, this is higher end stuff. So this is stuff we may not see, but of course you can hook consumer stuff to a higher end audio interface as well. So that is something you can do. So what I'll do is I'll bring up Make sure everything's going to work. We'll go here. And we'll bring up that. There we go. So essentially what we have here is, this is the Antelope Galaxy. Now I've shown the 32 and the 64 together. So essentially this is how they're used. I know this is how they're installed in Abbey Road Institute. Um, in Islington, they're actually installed with with this actually set up in one room in, in, their, in their Studio One. Um, so this is, that's an example of one place where they use is the Abbey Institute, um, which is at Angel Studios. Um, the other things that you, we, I haven't, not showing in this picture, but something that would be, would be a clock, but, but they'll show that a little bit later on. So essentially, Antelope is a, a company that's from Bulgaria in Sofia. Um, they've been around now since about 2005, and it's actually the second company for the founder, and his MO has always been clocks back in the uh, 90s and then into the 2000s. 
um, antelope being starting with clocks, but then they moved into audio interfaces. So the Galaxy 64 came out in early 2020 in the before times, and the Galaxy 32 came out in mid-2021 in, in the after times. So the development of the Galaxy 32 must have been a very interesting one there in Bulgaria. So because they're higher-end audio interfaces, these are actually had a price drop recently, but these are the kind of prices you're looking at for the 64, 11,000 and 6,000 for the 32. So these are the IOs on the back. Pretty much it's jammed. So we've got a 2U rack and a 1U rack. Um, we'll take a closer look. So essentially you can't fit anything else more on here. It's, it is that grant jam-packed. And we'll start probably with the, uh, the elephant in the room and that will be the I.O. on the right-hand side here. So what exactly are we looking at here? So these are 25-pin, they're called DB25s. They're developed by Tascam a long time ago to hook up equipment, analog equipment. Um, essentially, they're found in all different equipment. Tascam just came up with the format, but the, the pinouts can be kind of whatever you want, but for certain audio applications, there is a general rule as to how to do the pinouts. So the way that this particular unit is used, these are analogs and they're in groups of three. Those groups of three actually do line up directly with an XLR. So the pins on an XLR are exactly the same function as three pins on the actual DB25 connector. And there, of course, there are eight of these. So in, in essence, it's like you actually have eight XLR inputs, but in one small package. Now, if we actually put the Galaxy 32 next to it, you actually see that the entire space for a Galaxy 32 takes up just one URAC, same as eight XLR slots. And of course, there are eight DB25s on the 32. And you're thinking, well, what about the 64? The 64 has twice as many, so it has 16 of them. Now, we could actually just cram in 16 into one URAC, but of course, there are still a lot we'd have to put in. So that would be, this is the amount of rack space you'd need, and this is why we use the DB25 for the analogs ins and outs. They're still balanced, they still have the same quality as XLR, they're just in a smaller form factor. So what would we actually hook up to these kind of things, and how would we hook them up? So we have ins and outs. So the ins and outs, we have 32 outs on the 32, Galaxy 32, hence the name, and 64 on the Galaxy 64. So this system would have 96 balanced line outputs via analog, and then just below that, we have parity because we have the, the inputs as well. So 32 and 64 for a total of 96 line out. So this, if you've ever seen an audio interface with 96 ins and 96 outs for, this is line level, no mic. We'll get to that in a second. But it's, it's quite a lot. So this particular unit being so large as far as what it can do, you've got to think, how do we get actually audio in and out of it? There's a few ways. So DB25 to XLR female. So this would be used for your outs and your ins. Now we do have quarter inch as well because these are line level, still balanced, just quarter inch so you can get in and out of equipment. But the most common way you're going to use it is a DB25 to DB25. Um, and the, the type of equipment, or the type of, of uh, single piece you'd use that on would be a console. So here's an 84-channel console. As I said, we have 96 in, so we could get all the channels in, plus we could get 12 other channels, like six stereo stems coming in. Um, but realistically, we're going to be using something a little bit more modest. 
So we're looking at just a 32-channel uh, analog solid-state logic origin. So just a quick run around. The, so if you've ever used a Behringer or a Mackie or Allen and Heath, pretty much the same thing. It's just a little bit bigger, but there is one major difference with the inline console. So we have the preamps up top, so 32 preamps. We have our small faders. This is where it gets a little bit different to a Mackie or a Behringer. And we have 32 large faders. So the small faders and large faders can actually be fed different audio um, when it comes to what audio comes in. So we can record 32 channels simultaneously on this particular console through the preamps, and we can mix 64 channels simultaneously. We can actually mix a little bit more than that with some of the buses, but let's just say with the faders, we can mix 64 channels simultaneously, playback 64 and mix them simultaneously. So taking a quick look down, if, we've, if you've seen these kind of consoles before, we'll quickly go through what's here. We won't dwell on this too long. So we have the channel mic and line input. You can switch between which one. So that's one input into, the, into that for each channel. And then you have the monitor line input. Now, back in the day, this would have been the tape machine. So when you press play on the tape, this is where the tape would play back into the console so you could mix. Now we'll just do it through an interface as, as we're looking today, maybe through Pro Tools. Then we have the buses. So this is the cues and aux sends to send out for each channel. We have the high pass filter, which is not part of the preamp, which is important on, on these kind of consoles. They're actually separate, actually usually in the mix level we do that. Then we have EQ, just a basic four band parametric EQ. We have the busing system, which is really important for a console. So this is where they become really powerful. And then we'll move on down to the fader section. And as I said, they're a little bit different with inline consoles because we have two sets of faders per channel. So up the top, we have small fader pan, there's nothing unusual about what we're seeing here. There's just a little bit different layout and a different setup. The small fader itself, and we have the small fader, the mutes and the solos. And then we have the down below that, we have the, the large fader pans, the large fader mutes and solos, and then the large fader themselves, the actual large fader themselves. So, and this is for each channel. So each channel has two faders, has two pans, has two cuts. So that becomes important when you come into actually doing the mix. So now in the master section, this is where the consoles are very different to a, you know, a Behringer or a Mackie. So we have the busing system. So we have 16 track bus. So these are actually subgroups. So you can actually mix down the drums and then the drums could actually just be on a stereo in here. So we have the 16 tracks there. And then for all of our comm systems, we have talkback. So this allows us to talk from the control room into the live room. And then next to that, we actually have the listen mic. This is a microphone that will hang from the ceiling in the live room. It's usually a small condenser, so we can hear the musicians because they may not be mic'd up directly. So we can hear them in the control room. Then we have the stereo returns. So these will be from our aux sends. So these may be reverb, delay, those kind of things. Then we have the big monitor. So this is to make the speakers louder in the control room. We can control that whole section. Then we have what's actually being fed to the monitors, the external, the mix, whatever we want. And then we have the actual where the monitor's going. So we can have multiple monitor speakers hooked up and we can say we want the, you know, the Yamahas, we want the, the Adam speakers, and you can simply press that there. On the other side, we look at the bus compressor, which is, SSL, you know, SSL is very famous for their bus compressor. So this is replicated in many forms now, even software. And this is the original one from the 4000 series they've put into here. Then we have some interesting stuff. So we have an oscillator. So this is so you can generate a tone and put that tone in anywhere in the console and pass it through to make sure you're actually getting sound through. You don't have to play back a tape or something. You can just generate sound. So you can generate sound and actually put it through. Um, you've actually got a jack there. So you can actually you can plug in your own tone as well if you want. 
Um, then next to that, we've actually got how how the solos are actually handed. So when you actually solo a track, how the volume of the solos and how they're actually handed, and if it's small fader, large fader. And then we actually have how the meters are handed, the ballistics of the meters, we can clear the meters, those kind of things. And then we've got the actual the large fader itself. So this is the main mix, main mix fader, which generally you may do a stereo out for this, or you may just do stems. It depends on how you're working. Then the comms section. So this is for all the people who are interested in comms. This is the, the comms for the console. So we actually have a matrix. There's three destinations. So we've got two foldbacks in a studio, essentially three destinations. Um, we have a slate here, which works the same as a clapperboard in, in movies. So you actually do a slate and then you use talkback mic and you say what take it is, for what track it is. And so that prints. The reason why you do the slate, which is actually the oscillator, is going to play back, is because the tape machines back in the day could find that tone and stop. So you could actually cue the tracks by listening for that tone. So that's why they were used. And then we can just do the simple with the aux, the aux sensor, master aux and the cue bus. So beneath this section is going to be the, uh, the stereo group faders. This is actually where you're going to do most of the mix, where we actually put the stems and where the final mix is usually balanced out before we send it off to mastering. Pretty straightforward. You can mono certain groups. You can balance. So these come in as stereo. So you can do a balance of the groups rather than a pan. Then you've got your solos and mutes. And then you've got the actual faders themselves. And this is generally where your actual mix is going to be made for two-channel. For this particular desk, it's a two-channel desk. So this is where your actual mix is going to be made. So we'll move on from the console. And what we actually want to look at is how does this actually hook up to the galaxies? So around the back, nothing's actually labeled, which is interesting. So generally, this is not for a newbie. So everyone who would look at this would know what they're looking at. So they're actually just they're split up into eight. Uh, groups of eight. So there's four groups of eight here. They do make a 16-channel version of this desk now um, because of popular demand. They, their 32 is a little bit big for some people. So because of that, so we have it's essentially the same repetition across the back there, and then we have a master section down the bottom. But what we're going to do is we're going to quickly take a look just at this master section here and see what actually we're going to hook up physically to the interface. So we can actually see a lot of D-sub connectors here, and this is only half of it, of course, uh, with the exception of the master section. So what we actually have is... XLR inputs for the mic preamps. So they're going to go in. They don't need to go through D-subs. They're going to be hooked up to your mic tails or directly to your microphones. And then you're going to have the actual, so you're going to have your, chi you're going to have your channel line input. And then next to that, you're going to have your monitor. So that's your 64 channels in. So you can get 32 on each. And then you've got your direct outs. This would actually go out to your recorder. So this is direct out per channel. So you can record each channel. And then you would have your small fader insert returns and small fader sends and this is to go out to outboard equipment like compressors other eqs kind of that kind of stuff and same for the large fader so you have for each channel you have two inserts that you can have on this particular console which is true for most consoles then in the master section we have the bus output so this is the 16 bus output and then we have the the bus returns so you'd go out to effects for those buses and come back in and then you're going to go out again and that's where you could print your stems so you'd print your sevens to a recorder. So there'd be 16 channel recorder. Back in the day, it would have been a 16 track tape. And so they would have done it. And then you'd have your Q aux outputs. You'd have your stereo return inputs. So this would be from other gear that you would have your aux goes out. You'd have your external inputs. External inputs could be anything. It could be a click track. It could be playback from a Mac. You know, you could actually be playing back like a MIDI file for the musicians to listen to play along to. That's where they would come in. Then you'd have your foldback in studio. So this is your, your talkback area. So you'd all your foldback studio. The studio outputs essentially speakers that are in the studio. So you can actually play music into the studio um, that musicians who may be playing into a direct um, input box who don't need a microphone, they can listen to and play along with. Then your main mix returns, insert returns. Your monitor outs, which can go to four separate speaker setups, analog. 
and then of course the main mix outputs as a main mix bus. So that's a quick overview of what's actually at the back of this kind of console. And as you can see, there is a plethora of DB25. Just on this as a 32 channel, we saw the 84 channel before. So there's 41 DB25 sockets. Now there's only 24 sockets between the two, the 32 and the 64 together. So how do we choose which ones we actually sent into the console and actually from the console into the, into the actual um, audio interface? And we've got our 16 um, XLR sockets, but they would only be for the microphones, they're inputs only. So a total of 360 connections on the back of this particular console, you have to think about. And so this is where a large audio interface like this, which, which only has, as I said, the 24 D subs, not 41. So we have to we have to decide. So what I'm showing you here is one way of doing it. And I will show you quickly, I'll show you a second way, but we'll go through this quickly. So we have channel input. So there's your 64 channel. So coming out of the audio interface, going into the console, we can do a 64 channel mix with that. Then we'd have our directs. So this is recording the 32 mic preamps in, so we can actually record in through the audio interface. Then you'd need to get your stereo groups in and your stereo groups out. So this is to do your stems. So we're running out of space now. And then of course you'd want your mains. So this is the mains and this would also be the fold back as well in, in this group. So essentially this is um, part of the master section. But that, that the problem there is we're actually not using any of the inserts of the channels. And this particular audio interface actually has DSP that actually has hardware-based effects. So another way you could hook this up is just do the inserts. So if you only use the inserts into the 64, because the audio interface actually has DSP, a lot of DSP inside of it, it has 12 DSP chips and two FPGA chips. Um, and then you could hook up your stereo outs and your stereo back in for your stems. And then just simply do, so this is a second alternative because I said we only have 24 and we have 41. But if you've got the money, then logic would be just bring in another 64. And there we go. We have 40. The one we would miss would be like the oscillator route. You've got, you got a few funky ones that you don't really need to record, of course. So essentially that takes care of the right-hand side. Now we get to the left-hand side. So the left-hand side is majority of it's digital I.O. and power. So the main reason people would buy this audio interface is for the analog inputs. So you can use a console, an analog console, and the other big piece of this puzzle would be HDX. So this is Pro Tools HDX ports, and this is where this particular combo is why, this is why it's being used in Abbey Road Institute. So these are the, these are the PCI cards, PCIe cards for HDX. So this is how you talk to Pro Tools. Um, back in the day, Pro Tools was hardware software based. It is now a software based, but the software has compromises. If you want to run Pro Tools at full tilt, you know, turbocharged, then you still want the PCI cards. But you can choose now. So this is a general Pro Tools system. So here we've got it with a, with a Mac Studio. Um, now you'll notice here that on the left-hand side, we're showing what Avid consider their I.O. And they've actually, what they're showing here is can do in theory the similar amount of channels but what we're doing, we're going to take this system here that Avid is showing, and we're simply just going to replace it. And that's that's actually essentially where this fits into that Pro Tools system. Now, you may notice another box here that some people on Office Hours may have an idea what this actually is. This is a Sonnet box. It's made especially for Avid, and it's to fit the, the HTX cards so you can use them with Thunderbolt computers. Because, of course, we've gone for a while now without any uh, Mac Pro. So 
then it also, if you want a one U rack and you want to want just an you know an M32 equivalent, if you if you will in Pro Tools, you can put your Mac Mini in there, have your HDX card in there, and again, this is made by Sonnet for, for, for HDX for, for Avid. But Avid actually supports three cards, so the HDX system supports up to three PCI cards, which has a bit of a problem because a Sonnet box only fits a one. So therefore, what happened was you can put in the Mac Pro. Mac Pro now, so as of March this year, Apple Silicon now supports Pro Tools. That's a big tick. Before then, it was only Intel um, Macs that could support it, but now we have Apple Silicon, so that's all well and good. You can put them in there. At $12,500 for a fully maxed out Mac Pro, you may think that's a bit pricey to run um, Pro Tools, but you're forgetting that the Avid cards, just the Avid cards alone, are going to cost you $16,500. That doesn't include the $600 a year for Pro Tools. It's subscription-based now for those playing at home. But there is another way if you've got a Mac Studio. So, well, it can save a bit of money, but how do I get three cards onto Mac Studio? Well, then Sonnet has come to the party again and now has, because they require a lot more power to actually run these cards, they've put a special box again for Avid to run their cards. Um, and up the top there, you see the yellow cables, the special power cables that need to go in. So this can run the full complement. So you can save a little bit of money if you choose to use a Mac Studio, fully maxed out. Now, what are you actually getting for, for you know, $16,500 when you buy three of these? So what the audio interface is actually plugging into is 18 DSPs made by Texas Instruments and two, PG, and two FPGAs. So the 18 DSPs actually run Pro Tools, essentially. So the computer's CPU is really administrating Pro Tools, but the actual mixing and the actual all the sound editing is done actually on the on the cards. There is a native version of Pro Tools now, which does lean heavily on CPU, but it does have limitations. Uh, the two FPGAs are kind of bonkers. So one of the FPGAs is actually a router. It's a four and a half thousand by four and a half thousand cross point router for the audio. So if you think about that in video terms, you know you're thinking like a a two eighty eight. This is kind of crazy. And this is the largest chip by far and the biggest heat sink by far on the, on, the, on the card. And the other one is actually to get the stuff in and out of the card. So that's the FPGA to get it out. So that's a 256 voice PCI streaming chip. So with you got two XGX ports. And as we saw, we had six ports between the two. We have four on the 64 and two on the 32 on the Galaxy. So the most important thing about how to get audio in and out is you've got 192 channels. There's pretty much, there's not much else on the planet now that can actually do what this does. Um, merging kind of have a system, but merging has compromises with their system. Uh, this is at full bandwidth too. So what you're actually looking at is full 192 kilohertz, uh, 192 channels. So there's your six car, six ports onto your three cards. This is the only system that can do this. And this is why you find it in big recording studios because nothing else on the planet can actually do this at the moment. Although merging do have solutions where you could sync up machines in a way, but merging, you're looking at the same price anyway. Now, the other thing you could probably look at with these kind of systems is going to be Dante. So Dante is something familiar to a lot of people in office hours, but we're going to look at how we're going to use Dante in this particular setup. Now, there's two things that Dante is really amazing for. One is the fact that this particular one has so many inputs and outputs. So we have 128 for 48 kilohertz. Dante does have a limitation when you go up to higher frequencies, higher, you actually do lose channels, but that's because essentially it's, it's um, joining, it's muxing two channels together to get this kind of bandwidth. Now, the only thing that Dante, anyone who uses Dante knows it's very flexible. 
But to use that flexibility, I suggest anyone who's doing production in Dante, you want to get your Swiss Army knife in Dante. And that's going to be the RVO adapters. So a full set of these will set you back $1,500, but pretty much any production worth their skin should have a case with these sitting in there because it just solves so many problems that you just can't do with a big stage box. But a big stage box is really what you want to use on this particular one. So Dante stage boxes can get kind of bonkers, and we're going to go to a bonkers one. So solid state again. This is SSLs. This is their stage box, the 32 inputs. It uses their super analog preamps. So these are the exact same preamps that you found on the console. So this enables us to actually go to a 64 record on the console now because we have the exact same preamps. So 32 mic line inputs, same as on the console, 16 line outputs for analog, and then we have AES. So this AES can be used for monitors. You can use it for many other things. So you actually get digital out of that as well. So it's $21,000. So it's, it's less than half the price of the console, which is kind of good. Why is it $21,000? So it's really what's happening around the back here is what makes it $21,000 for Dante. So we'll take a look at how Dante works on this system, which will be very different to anything else that we've probably seen on Office House before. So we have a Dante Network A, which is Ethercon, it's pretty much just basically Ethernet. And then Dante Network B, which is also SFP, which is just fiber, but you can put a copper version you know, of an SFP module in there. Now, both of these have two independent Brooklyn 2 cards. But there's also inside, there is a switch. So inside this unit, it actually has a switch and you can engage and disengage the switch. So you can actually have uh, the console, you've got an external console and you can control the preamps in this particular stage box. But you can also have gain, gain compensated splits as well. But you can do that through one console. Now, if you want to have a front of house and monitors, but you, if you want monitors, and this is all going out of just the Ethercon cable, so we're not using fiber here, you can have an external switch and both the monitors and the front of house can actually have access to, well, the front of house can have access to the gain and monitors, when the gain is changed by front of house, the monitor do not see that. So the gain does not change for the monitor, monitor console if they're choosing to use the gain compensation. Now, there isn't, there's another way you can set this up, whereas if you actually put in the SFP module, so now we can actually run two different modules and running two different Brooklyn 2 cards. So here we've actually got them linked. So we've actually got the two consoles linked inside and the, inside the actual um, stage box. So there's, as I said, there's a switch built inside. Now either console can access the gain and or gain compensated. So either one, if they choose to. But the power of this comes when you disconnect that switch. Now you can have a front of house mix and a broadcast mix and the broadcast, the front of house, when they change the gain, the broadcast doesn't see that. So the levels do not change for the broadcast console at all. So that's the way you can actually do a streaming in front of house. And front of house will have different requirements. They need to cut mics and not cut mics with this stuff. If they choose to do that, it won't affect the broadcast. But all out of the one stage box. Then you've actually got the issue of sample rates. So maybe front of house wants to run at 96K because essentially what they have is a much more um, malleable uh, set of frequencies to work with by going to a high bit rate. But of course, broadcast doesn't need that. Broadcasters usually just need to do a summing mix. But the biggest one is this. You can have different clock domains from the one 
stage box. So if you've got an OB truck outside that has its own clock and it's doing its own, it's sort of doing a lot more other things with audio and it can't run on your clock that's built into this, into this stage box, it can run its own clock and you, it, it, can, it's, it doesn't have to use the Dante clock inside in the Brooklyn 2 card and that's true for both consoles. So both consoles could have external clocks running their equipment and those external clocks are telling the stage box to run at different speeds and it can do that. So this is kind of one of the reasons why this particular stage boxes, there's a handful of them, are very valuable because they can work with an OB truck outside and they can work with front of house inside and they don't have to complain. They can run their own clocks. They can run their own system however they want. And so you kind of get that flexibility by having these two networks with two Brooklyn 2 cards but feeding into the same preamps. Now, the other thing that we see on the back of the consoles like this sorry, of, of the audio interfaces like this, it's going to be MADI. So MADI is another thing we come across a lot in production. Now, one of the things about MADI is quite interesting um, is it's got similar kind of specifications in this with Dante as far as the amount of channels you get in and out. And of course, it falls down, it muxes the channels, of course, if you go up to high frequencies. But the other thing about MADI, which is quite interesting, is that MADI is quite powerful as far as long distance. So you can run two kilometers with a MADI cable, which makes it kind of good as a digital snake. It's used in productions. Now, the way that I would probably hook these two consoles together is with MADI. So you just go from MADI out from one and MADI into the other. And that links the two pieces of hardware. But you may want to do that via Dante, or you may not want to do that at all because both the systems are feeding into the same Pro Tool session. So you may not need to do that. But that's one thing. Now, running an RME converter allow you to switch because they're both optical on this. So if you have BNC MADI, then you can just buy a converter. This will do six. You can go either way. You can go from optical to fiber and vice versa. So that's usually one kind of thing you'd hook up directly to this. And then the other, another thing from RME would be a router. So this is what it sounds like. It's a router for Maddie. Um, so essentially it's, it's a 768 cross point. Now, because Dante is limited, sorry, because Maddie is limited to 64 outs. So technically you can bring in 768 in and you can pipe how many of those you want. You don't, you're not mixing though. So this is just routing and not mixing. We'll get to mixing in a second. So if SDI is what your game is, and you have audio channels on SDI that you need to embed or de-embed, and you want to do it via MADI, this box actually does Dante as well. So we can do it throughout. You can embed MADI, AES, and Dante in this particular box. It will do eight SDI streams in and eight SDI streams out. And it will take all 16 channels from each of those streams. And it'll give you a total of 128 channels of SDI. Now, if we want to do mixing, this is pretty much one of the best mixes at the moment for Maddie. So this actually has a ridiculous mixer built in. It has some pretty crazy DSP, very similar to the HDX cards. What's actually happening here is we have 196 in, technically 192 in Maddie and 192 out with a few extras we can see in there but it's 4,096 channel mixer. Now this is a full mixer with buses and all that kind of stuff. So you can have all your different buses, but this is all done by DSP inside the actual unit itself. And it actually does a hundred um, sub mixes out. So hundred stereo mixes out for monitors. So you can have a hundred people on stage all having different mix coming out of that one machine. So another thing with Maddie that we, we don't talk about too much is, but it does work quite well is with the Constellation, and also with the newer studio um, ATEMs at the moment, which also have MADI in as well. 
So the way Maddie works with this is a little bit different because it's actually part of a larger system. It doesn't assume that you're going to do everything in the one box. So it has one Maddie input and two Maddie outputs. The MADI input is 64 channels that get sent to the ATEM summing mixer. Now, the ATEM only has a summing mixer. It doesn't have what we consider a full mixer. So summing mixers means you can take all these channels, but they get mixed out of two channels. That's it. And so that's actually the second part of mixing. Um, the first part of mixing, you'd have buses and groups. But the second part of mixing is you have to get them all down to two channels or 5.1 in the end. And with, with the ATEM, it's two channels. But it's the outputs that get quite interesting. So you, on your output one, you get 30, so channels one to 30, so when you plug in your cameras, those first 30, channels one and two get output via MADI, so the audio is coming in from those cameras. So talkback mic goes out through MADI, and your stereo, because you do have analog, one set of analog, um, TRS, and they're output through MADI as well, through MADI one. And then MADI two, you get, for the first 30 cameras, channel three and four coming from those cameras, talkback mic again, and the program audio. So because there's only a stereo bus, a single stereo bus, the program audio is your bus out. Now, the other thing that's happening with the, in ATEM world is going to be the ATEM microphone converter. It's a pretty big deal. Um, it's not being talked about too much because it's all under the hood. There's no real, there's no, there's, there's no buttons. There's nothing to play with. It's simply MADI in, MADI out, HDMI out. Now, the HDMI out is actually used to see your meters so you can actually see what's actually happening on your tracks if you're, um, essentially these are your meters because you'll understand why, how these meters work. Now, the other thing that we have is four XLR inputs or TRS. They can be line or mic and they have phantom power as well. Dip switches on the side of a phantom power. Now, it actually has 32-bit raw preamps. Now, we call it floating point, but floating point is actually a little bit not of a misnomer for this particular product. It technically is floating point at one part, but really it's 32-bit raw. So that's probably a better way of thinking about it. Now, what is the actual, what's happening on, on the inside of this? So what we'll do is we'll take a look. We're going to take a look at just at one input. So one of the XLR inputs. Now, this could be for line level or microphone. I'll choose to go with microphone, but we'll just put that there. And then what happens, the audio signal comes in at analog. The analog signal is split eight times. And it goes into eight different gains and eight different filters. These are fixed gains and they're fixed filters. So essentially each one has a different gain setting and each one has a different filter setting. Then the analog audio goes through that, it's still analog, it'll pass out of that and it will go into the analog to digital converters. These analog digital converters are tuned to the gain setting that was happening before. But they'll come in, so this, this is just for one microphone input. It'll go into eight different, well that you'll have parity, they're the same, but eight analog converters. Now, this is all done at 48K, by the way. So it's a 48K process. Then from there, now it's digital. It'll go into the washing machine. It goes through, you know, patent pending. It'll go through all this kind of stuff. Essentially, what it's doing is it's because we've got the filter in analog and we've got the gain in analog, um, we're actually going to, regardless of how loud or quiet um, the sound coming in, as long as it doesn't distort the actual microphone itself, as long as the capsule doesn't go past its limit, then this is how the all the magic that happens inside. And this is kind of what's happening inside your door when you're doing a uh, 30-bit float. The difference is it has to be done in a door. Here it's actually being done inside the box. So really important how it's done. And then it comes out of the washing machine and goes into Maddie and it comes out as a single channel of audio. But the way it actually works is you actually get to choose um, your volume levels inside the actual software to control it. 
So there's software that controls it. It's pretty basic. You just have four, and all you're doing is you're looking at your HDMI output, and you're saying, am I a little bit too high? Coming down, because you're actually doing 32-bit float live. You're not doing it in a door after the fact. But where this particular system is bonkers is the fact that it's not just one. It's 16. So 16, they run Daisy Chain, and when you run 16, they all just link one to the other, not a problem. Um, power can be done quite easily because they don't take too much power either. And then when you do that, this is what I actually get on your fourth screen. So there, it sends out four 1080p streams. So every fourth one in the daisy chain, you simply plug into, and this is what you'll get out of it. So you'll have 16 channels per stream. Um, and then you'll see on the left-hand side with these, if you've got founder power turned on and off, but it also show you clipping and show you VU meters. So you can just have four screens or you can have one 4K screen, of course, with a, uh, with a matrix. Then you put it all on one 4K screen, and there's all your audio. I know Alex has shown in the past, he's shown screens with just audio, and this is kind of where this sits. You can see all your audio, if you're clipping on any of the 64 tracks or 32 tracks or 16 tracks, however many you want to use, but you can just look in one screen and go, oh, we're clipping there, we're clipping there. And it's simply just a, it's just simply a slider in software to fix that. So the way that these actually kind of integrate is I would say suggested with a Mo2. So a Mo2, this is a, essentially this is kind of like a, an X32 in a, in a 1U or half U rack. Um, it has the same power as an X32. Um, it's a little bit more limited because it doesn't have all the in and out features of an X32, but it has um, all the same busing and that kind of mixing. So you can actually do a pre-mix before you go into an ATEM. So simply as, we, as we're showing here, we've got coax and we've got fiber. So you can go coax in and out, it has two outs as well. Um, but yeah, you can do like a pre-mix and you can send stems to your ATEM rather than sending just all the channels, all the microphones to the ATEM. So you may actually want to do a mix with busing and have busing and your mutes and all that kind of stuff. All the stuff the ATEM is missing, you're doing this small box and then it will simply spit out. Because it's doing 48K, it's very easy for this box to do. It's just like the X32, which is limited to 48K as well. The other thing is it does 128 channels IO. So it does a lot more than an X32, which is limited to 32. So that's another reason why these kind of boxes are quite handy. Now, as far as other things you can use it for, SPDIF, SPDIF would be one. It's pretty basic for SPDIF. You just go to recorder. The client may just want a recording of what's happening. So you can just go to a two-channel recorder, give them an SD card, a CD, whatever the client wants. This is to appease a client. So many recorders out there, SPDIF is one use for it. It's simply just a two-track. Um, the two-track can be anything, so you can, you can route anything to this, but that's a good idea for a spitifist to use it in that way. Uh, the other one to use on the, you notice on the 32, now it's not, it doesn't actually exist on the 64, is ADAT. Now ADAT, of course, can go to other recorders and go to other kind of interfaces, but one place where this would kind of be useful because ADAT is very low latency would actually be bringing in a 500 series. So this is a 500 series analog effects, so you actually put in like preamps and delays, these are all analog you just slide in your analog effects. So, but this has ADAT IO for this particular effect. So you can actually have all your analog goodness and just run it. And so you're essentially just patching. You can patch anything you want from the audio interface to the ADAT. And then what comes back in via the ADAT into the audio interface can be patched anywhere else. So essentially you just got analog IO on a digital system. Now, the other thing that you've, you notice that here, we actually have down the bottom is Thunderbolt. Now, I won't get into Thunderbolt too much. It's pretty straightforward. You know, just plug in a Mac, you know. But of course, you can run Logic. You can run all the other stuff, you know, through Thunderbolt. And of course, you control the system through Thunderbolt as well. Although the 64 has a unique system where one of them can be run as USB and you can actually have one computer running it 
and one computer doing the recording. Now, the work clock. Now, this is where Antelope actually made their money from back in the early days. So the work clock is kind of interesting. This is an atomic clock, so it actually uses rubidium. So this is a master clock that runs all other clocks. Now, as you can see, the 64 has a lot of clock outputs, but you can send it one master clock from an atomic clock, and then it can run everything else in your system. So the other thing that the atomic clock has is it has its, its many atomic clocks. So you can actually run many systems and it has work clocks and you can send out time code and all these other things as well. Now, there are other many, many other brands do this, but this is kind of one of the bonkers ones because it's, it's an actual atomic clock. Now, I'll get straight. So the AES is just stereo in and out. A good example of where to put them would be in a, in a monitors. So I'll just show envelopes here, but any monitors, you know, because there's a stereo in and out. And of course, these monitors have... Yeah, they have both, and you can use the analog as well. So analog, it's, it's perfectly fine to use it either that way. Now, the headphone on the front is kind of interesting. It's only on the uh, 64, not on the 32. Headphone is just to make sure there's nothing going wrong. So you can you can route anything to the headphones. Um, and this is just to make sure something, Just you, this is good for just checking. The other system that this has inside is actually a, a DSP engine. And this is actually why a lot of people actually buy this particular unit and why they put it onto a analog console because it actually has these built in so there has 12 dsps just like the D, the um, avid card had 18 this has 12 dsps and two fpgas and it can actually run all these kind of plugins which are actually modeled on the original equipment um, and so the original equipment is is actually very powerful um, in actually and they've actually worked with all the manufacturers um, that are still around some aren't still around anymore um, they've got what's known as golden units and they've actually been able to map these golden units and actually create these DSP. So this is actually a big part of why Antelope actually exists because they actually have a lot of work going on as far as the amount of processing they can do inside the box. So you could actually just use the box, not as an audio interface, just for effects because it can actually run 256 instances of, you know, 1176. You can have 256 of them. In, in a row. So that's kind of crazy how much power there's there. All right. So we'll leave, I'll leave it up to the other panelists now to uh, ask any questions or uh, talk about the interfaces they have. Um, yeah. Good. Good morning. Well, that was a masterclass. Thank you so much, Carl. Um, ooh, you know, this, uh, the tally here is lighting up my face. Okay, so um, yeah, so that was great. Thank you so much, Carl. Um, you know, when I think of audio interfaces, uh, I typically think of a way to get analog audio into a digital format so I can get it into and out of a computer um, or a recorder or something else. And so, you know, I use an XR18, which is a portable 18 input mixer. Um, audio interfaces, as Carl is showing us, can also be format converters. They can be routing processors. They can be matrices. They can be digital audio processing and effects processing. Um, you know, there's <clears throat> from the more basic, uh, well, actually, this is a little bit more than basic. Uh, Personas Revelator, uh, which comes in a couple different formats from two inputs, and there's four inputs. That's the, uh, this one is showing a two input, which comes with 
control software, and this control software is the one that comes with the Revelator microphone, so it's only showing one analog input, um, but it includes uh, a four-channel mixer with four, four virtual outputs that can go use, be used for loopback and for sending audio to different applications. Um, it has processing built into it. It has some audio presets for uh, tonal control, and it has uh, DSP with some reverb and other effects to it. Um, and then we can get up, and these are these are things that uh, we would use for desktop uh, production work. Uh, but when you're going into a studio, sort of like what Carl was showing us with uh, the Galaxy system, uh, NTP from uh, Denmark has a somewhat similar system. There are many differences, and this comes in different sizes. Uh, the DAD product line, uh, which has a matrix and format converter that converts from MADI and ADAT, AES, SDI, Analog, Dante, Thunderbolt, and others can uh, go from any of these formats to any of these formats. Uh, it is a DAW interface, uh, so you can <clears throat> send this to multiple computers, and then there's uh, option cards for different kinds of inputs and outputs, and then there's the control software, which has a mixer and a matrix in it. Um, and there are optional control panels, sort of like router button panels, to make uh, control a little bit faster and easier. And then they have some uh, application examples uh, for how you would use this in a music studio, in an Atmos post-production room, even for location recording. And for uh, and for Maddie DAW, so there are a number of different ways to use audio interfaces, and uh, they are you know more than just getting audio into and out of a computer. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Our first one comes from Luca Pascal Giannini in Montreal. How would you compare high-end audio interfaces, the MixPre and so forth, with the Zoom H6, and what would be the use cases for one high-end or the other prosumer interfaces? Good morning. Well, so I, I was uh, responding to a Facebook post on one of the professional audio uh, groups, and they were asking about 32-bit float. Um, and some of the some of the people were saying the 32-bit float is only used on like prosumer low-end systems, and I made the mistake of uh, thinking about the um, uh, the mix pre's. You know, said uh, I said that uh, you know some of the more most expensive audio interfaces and are. Uh, do include 30 to bit float and I got lambasted for that and a bunch of people were saying uh, you know it was their opinion that the uh, the mix pre is not among the highest cost or highest level that they consider those prosumers so it's it's all a matter of interpretation um, you know <clears throat> they're they're looking at the uh, the eight aton uh, mixers the the higher end uh, uh, sound devices mixers, the 
Zaxcom mixers, uh, which actually don't include 32-bit float. They they are standardized at 4896-bit. Um, so how would I compare them? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all a matter of, of your workflow and the kind of work you do and your customers' expectations and what they need in their workflow. Good, Courtney. Uh, I wouldn't compare the um, uh, the sound devices uh, mix pre threes to the H six. I'd compare it to the F six, which is their film series, uh, because it has uh, more of the same features that you'd find on the uh, USB pre. Because it has a time code, it has thirty two bit interface, it has six inputs. Uh, it's designed for portable work. It has better battery management uh, because it has uh, internal pin lights. It has uh, uh, batteries that can go on the back and it has an external uh, power input and it manages those quite well. Uh, the input preamps, I think, sound a little bit better on the Mix Pre 3. Uh, not much. They're very close. If you go, Curtis Judd did a, did a pretty good review of the F6 and compared it uh, a little bit to the uh, Mix Pre 3. And I think he found the quietness of the preamps actually pretty close. So they're pretty close and and they're the uh, the F6 compared to Mix Pre 3 is about 750 bucks compared to 800 and something for the Mix Pre 3 version two. Uh, and it gives you three more inputs. So you can do ambisonic recording with the uh, Zoom F6 uh, that you may not be able to do with the uh, the sound devices you get it and it has a, a very accurate built-in time code clock which you can jam which is important if you're shooting uh, a double system for film or television uh, which you can do also with the mix pre 3 you cannot do that with the h6 because it doesn't really handle time code or broadcast wave i don't believe in any respect um, the h6 is designed more for a portable a handheld type situation with the mics that kind of clip on the top so that you can do stereo recording uh, with the two built-in mics, or you can unplug that and plug in two extra uh, XLR inputs into it. But it's really not designed for the uh, uh, film sound uh, you know, situation where it has all the metadata in the files that the uh, that the Mix Pre and the uh, Zoom F series do. So look at Curtis Judd's uh, review. It's very quite good. Next question. Tony Tang in Chicago, thoughts around recording using high sample rates like 192 kilohertz and longer word lengths of 32-bit integer float. Is the end result audibly improved and worth it or a waste of CPU processing resources? Go ahead, Carl. So essentially, for processing, not a problem. So M2, just an M2 Mac Mini can handle 192. You've got to remember, 192-bit sorry, 192 kilohertz at, you know, 24 bit for 64 channels is 300 meg, megabits per second. So that's, you know, that's, that's very, that's a very low data amount. What the reason why you record very high is because if you're going to change anything about that audio, so if you're doing live stream, 48 is perfectly fine, because you're not going to change too much about the audio. If you're going to go in and do EQ compression and, and put it through all these different plugins, or maybe even go out to hardware and come back in, then 192 is really important because you're actually going to be stretching the dynamics and the stretching the actual frequencies of that particular audio track. So 192 is really good. When you print it out, you can print it back out to CD, not a problem. It's when you're actually using it like plasticine, that's where you want the high bit rate. And then when you're putting it back to a fixed like rigid plastic, you know, literally polycarbonate like on a CD, then you can go back to 44.1. 
because that's not a problem because just you know it's the way frequencies work but it's when you're playing it with malleable you know that's when you want at the high bit rate also if you're doing sampling that's another reason too next question jack rupel breckenridge colorado how do you use stream deck in your audio pipeline you know it's funny i don't really use the stream deck in my audio pipeline i am i am um playing with using the stream deck with the encoders on them for logic but haven't been super successful with that yet uh so but so i haven't um you know haven't done a lot with the stream deck other than that one um next question Douglas Carmichael is up next. He said, would RME's digital interface, a Digiface Dante, be the closest thing to a multi-track AVIO, AVIO, to connect a DAW, digital audio workstation, to a Dante-equipped console? Good, Carl. Yeah, so essentially uh, what it is, it's, it's Dante to USB. That's it. So that, that's exactly right. So if you're looking at the RVO ones or the USB one anyway, um, so yeah, Dante to USB. And the cool thing about that one is you can actually use a BNC and actually change the software and make it MADI as well. So it's actually MADI to BNC and Dante to BNC. Oh, sorry, MADI to USB and Dante to USB. It doesn't do Dante to MADI. So it doesn't do that cross-conversion. It's all to USB. So it's USB only. But it, it is pretty cool. 64 channels of Dante. It works quite well. Next question. Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado. Zoom now has a 32-bit float audio interface. Is this a sign of wider adoption of 32-bit workflows? Good, Carl. Yeah, so I know on their F8N, I believe, they've got the 32-bit float, which is pretty cool. And they've got, I think, a few other ones coming down the line. So what it is, what 32-bit float is, is undeveloped. It's raw. It's kind of like equivalent to be like good in, in photography. So taking a raw photograph it's not actually developed until you put it into software or let the camera itself export a JPEG. So because it's raw, when it gets to the DAW, the DAW knows what it is and it sees it as raw audio. And it's actually how um, plugins work. Plugins actually turn it into this raw audio, do all its, all its work on it, and then put it back out as, as a 40, you know, generally a 24-bit um, integer at the end of it. So essentially, the, it simply just looks like it does in a plugin. And so the, the audio workstation just looks at that way. You can use EQ, you can use Dynamics, and then the audio workstation will fold it back down to maybe a 32-bit integer um, or a 24-bit integer or whatever you want um, later on. But essentially, it's like it's very raw or malleable, but it's not formed. So it's not a WAV file. So you can't actually listen to it until it goes into a DAW. DAW is actually converting it into a WAV file for you to be able to hear it on your monitors. Go, Courtney. A 32-bit float uh, does take 30% more data storage space. So if you're recording, it's, you're going to need you know 30% more space per amount of time. Uh, and it does give you, as Carl said, the ability to uh, adjust later. You don't limit your dynamic range. It gives you a much higher, because of the floating point, it gives you a much higher, broader, way beyond the uh, the SPL of most microphones and beyond the range of hearing of most people as far as pain goes for dynamic range. And that, that, that way it gives you a, a much lower noise floor and a much higher uh, distortion uh, a wall to avoid. Uh, you know, you don't have to worry about running into the brick wall at, at 16 bits or 24 bits. So, um, so it's that. It's, it's good for that. It's good for situations uh, where you, you can't monitor the levels directly if you've got, you know, 20 inputs and you're concerned with other things uh, and you're tracking those 20 inputs directly to uh, a recorder. You may not be able to monitor the input levels and, and tweak them as they go. If somebody starts shouting somewhere on one of those inputs, it can handle that dynamic range without, without the fear of, of going over because it's recording, a, you know, at a, at a much broader uh, spectrum of dynamics. Next question. 
Douglas Carmichael, I've heard of concerts using UAD plugins at front of house. Would you use the native plugins and a live friendly host like Live Professor, or would you use an Apollo unit? I know the Apollos don't have native digital I.O. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, so essentially that's that's what we were talking about. So there's many ways of doing this. Uh, UAE is an interesting company. It's actually one that folded and came back up again. Um, but they have access to the older tech back in the, the 60s and 70s when the, the compressors and those kind of things were created. Um, so Waves has this. There, there's many different ways of doing this. So essentially you're taking, if you're doing all digital, then you can actually just have a box that has DSP and it's simply the signal goes out of your console into the box, goes through the DSPs in real time. And that's exactly what, you know, the envelopes do. So this is why they cost the money they do is because they have real time. I think like, I believe that the, the, the biggest latency is 0. 0.0, so 0.7 milliseconds is the longest latency for this system. Um, the MADI is the shortest latency and it's one of the reasons. MADI is um, 0. 0.062 milliseconds. So it's actually 62 microseconds round trip. And that's why they're used in consoles. And of course, the analog is just analog. So um, the analog is actually faster, I believe, than Dante. Um, but that's why they're used. Now, there are many different systems and many different consoles. So you can, but we are in a point now where the DSPs inside these things are so fast and audio is not a very heavy lift. You know, 4K, 8K video is more, way more of a heavy lift than the audio. So we actually now are living in a time when this is a, a breeze to do, especially on even on a almost, almost um, on a Mac Mini, almost. Next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Up next, would a studio engineer ever use an audio interface for guitar pedals or would they just DI each one? Go ahead, Carl. So the trend that's happening now versus a trend that happened maybe 20 years ago and maybe in the 90s, but the 90s were being back on tape. So the way it actually works now is we use um, reamping. So this gives the choice. So they'll actually play you know, with their rig and they'll have the live sound, but they're not recording that live sound via microphones. Well, they are, but that's one that's one track or two tracks they're using. They're going to have probably 16 tracks for that guitar. One of them is going to be a clean feed. One of them is going to be a clean feed via an emulator. And then essentially with the clean feed, they can put it through reamping. So reamping, so right, there's many different reamping at the moment. So Boss has just released a new one and there's Kempers and everything. So what reamping does, it allows you to completely change rig so you can actually play it through the speakers with different microphones and everything after the fact um and that's actually the job of a producer so rock and roll producer is actually the person who creates a tone it's the job of the artist to play the notes it's kind of with the balance so in rock and roll in other kind of medium it's a little bit different but rock and roll pretty much the artist is just there to play the notes and the producers there to make the tone good morning yeah, we did reamping even in the analog days. We would record uh, the raw audio from the guitar, from the uh, uh, in studio uh, <clears throat> uh, amplifier, and then uh, later on we would play it back in the studio through loudspeakers, and then do processing at our leisure because you know the the performance was already done. But in today's studio, you know, um, you're you're pretty much recording directly into a DAW. And so you're always going to be going through an interface to get to that DAW. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, a lot of guitar pedals, uh, especially the last one in the guitar pedal chain, would have a DI built into it, and it would have a balanced XLR output, in which case you don't need a DI, because the DI is already built in. Uh, 
And if that's not the case, then you can go through a DI to get to a balanced interface or balanced output to get into your DAW's interface. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. What do you think of merging's Anubis interface? I've heard mixed reviews of it, but it seems like a powerful device for its size. And there's a link there. Good, Carl. So the Anubis has been out for quite a few years now, six or seven years. Um, essentially, it was made for two things. It was made as a controller. So that's it. It was made as a monitor controller first. And um, Behringer's actually just released, you know, the poor man's version of this. It's quite nice. But they have a poor man's version of the Anubis. Um, that's what it was. It was meant to be a monitor controller with inputs. So you can actually bring your audio in. Um, and then people said, oh, it's actually, you can actually do quite a lot with it because it's very high quality audio um, analog to digital converters in it. Um, but really the whole point of it, it's meant to be the digital to analog converters in there. So when you're converting from your DAW to monitors and you want to go out to it, that's actually where the power is. It just so happens they put a, an analog to digital converter in there as well. It can control a whole merging system. Merging systems get into hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, it can do 64 tracks of DSD. It's the only one in the world now that can do it. Sony has, you know, deprecated that whole system. So pretty much merging the only one left now. Tascam, um, with the chip shortage. Um, have dropped their DSD recording systems as well, unfortunately. Um, so Tascam are no longer doing it. So it looks like it is merging. It's the only one leading forward now with DSD. Um, and the Anubis, the Anubis is pretty much the best controller for their larger system, which sits in like, you know, a 16U rack. Thanks, Carl, for the, for the, uh, that was quite a presentation. <laughs> so thank, thanks for the hard work there. Um, and, uh, and thank you to the panel for the great conversation in the first hour and second hour. Uh, really appreciate your, we can't do this without you. Can't also can't do it without, uh, all the producers out there asking questions and keeping the, uh, the conversation moving forward. And finally, thanks to the incredible team that every day gets up here and makes sure that we have a show. We have people prepping the speakers, uh, people, planning the second hours, people uh, developing the software that makes this actually work. And then we also have uh, um, an incredible team on a day-to-day actually cutting this show, and we appreciate all of your uh, contribution. Uh, we traveled 42,000 miles today, 68,000 kilometers, and that is uh, 336 million bananas for scale. Let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Interface for my interface. There's so many. Let's chain them together. I need a new outer face. An outer face, yeah. It's outer.